Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There is no offseason, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 8th day of September 2017 in a Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Belvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of of the San Francisco Giants. Hey, folks, how you doing? Um, this is almost mid-September, and we're taking. You know, we're, we're the summer is psychologically over, and the baseball gods are looking upon what could be an absolutely unbelievable October that we could be facing. Now, I want to just talk about one thing before I get there's a, there's a couple things going on here that are that are truly uh, truly remarkable that are happening simultaneously. Two levels of success are actually three teams levels of success are kind of making my head spin. One team is the best team in baseball, and you wouldn't know it, but I want to just pay tribute to someone right away, and that's Gene Michael. Uh, I, you know, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, so when I start praising someone who is integral to the New York Yankees, then you know I mean business here. The New York Yankees of the 1990s and early 2000s were the it's the greatest World Series run of any franchise in the certainly in the wild card era which began officially in, in 94, and we had our first postseason with a wild card in 95. So, and that's been, you know, it's more than 20 years. And you take a look at the teams before that, the era of free agency, there's been a, very few f- teams that have had sustained long-term success in terms of trips to the postseason in the World Series. And the Yankees were so great and became uh, the most beloved New York team I ever saw. And I lived in New York, and I saw Giants teams that won the Super Bowl, the Rangers win the Stanley Cup, the Mets get back to the World Series. And I never saw a team that was as beloved as the Joe Torre era Yankees. The core, I don't like to call it the core four because it, you know, that, that would refer to Pettit, Jeter, Rivera, and Posada who were all there for the championship in 2009, I think it diminishes the value of Bernie Williams, who was the superstar early on, and also Posada was not on the postseason roster in 96. But that's neither here nor there. This was a team of homegrown Yankee superstars that really hadn't been seen since the era of Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra. I couldn't say Roger Maris because Roger Maris was acquired from the A's. Now, the, the Bronx Zoo Yankees were there, and there were some homegrown stars on that team, especially uh, Thurman Munson and Ron Guidry and Roy White. But a lot of that team was assembled from other teams. Chambliss was trade. Uh, Randolph was a trade. Jackson was a free agent sign and everything like that. And there was great chaos because there were teams and players shuffled around. So that Yankee team that was emerged was a throwback to the great Yankee teams 
it seemed like they would have aligned perfectly with the Yankee teams of Stengel and of Joe McCarthy that could be linked back to Babe Ruth. And it brought, that was when all the talk of all the rings they've won and the connection to the history. And these players were just embraced by New York. And of course, they were the team in September, at the time of September 11, 2001. So when a New York team was representing the city, it wasn't a bunch of vagabonds. It wasn't a bunch of guys acquired via free agency. They looked up and there was a, yeah, you had your, there were players like Clemens and everything on the team, but you had a team that was filled with stars that Yankee fans could point to and say, yep, that's our guy. And that it sort of ignited a Yankee pride amongst the fan base that had been dormant. They hadn't won a World Series since 1978 when they won the World Series in 1996. The Yankees as an organization became a joke as a team that was once great, but that Steinbrenner ruined. And there's been a lot of revisionist history about the Yankees and their greatness then. One was, well, they spent their money and they bought all the superstars. Statistically, that's not true. There were bigger superstars on other teams than the Yankees. And they didn't have huge sluggers that they brought in either. And, of course, there's the tons of revisions history regarding George Steinbrenner, which was he never accepted anything less than a championship on the field, and he delivered all these titles to New York. What a bunch of bullshit that is. You could make the case that Steinbrenner prevented greatness in New York. From all the times that he meddled and kicked people out and forced the GMs to make ridiculously stupid trades. Which brings us to Stick Michael. If you're a Yankee fan and you got your Got Ring shirt and you're walking around crowing all during those championship years, then I hope in the last couple of days you do whatever you do in terms of honoring the dead and that you honor Gene Michael. If you're a Yankee fan at all, I don't care what age you are. I don't care if you're too young to remember 96. I don't care if you're an old timer who saw the great days of Mantle and Barra. If you are a Yankee fan, however you honor the dead, whether it's taking a glass and saluting the sky, whether it's going to church or your temple or your mosque, and you, the only thing I know from because I'm a lapsed Catholic is lighting a candle. I don't know what you do in other faiths. But whatever it is you do, whether you bless yourself, whether you say a prayer, whether you just write a poem or, or whatever it is, I hope you did that to honor Gene Michael. Because Gene Michael is why you had that great run. And of course, Gene Michael was one of the truly, I think, not only underrated, but disrespected members in the history of the Yankees. He was given a chance to be a manager for the Yankees when, they, when Steinbrenner fired Dick Hauser. But his one chance to manage in the postseason was taken away from him because they, they were going to the playoffs in 1981 and down the stretch... He replaced Gene Michael with Bob Lemon, who had been there before. And Bob Lemon basically managed the Yankees out of the World Series. And then later, he was a general manager and was pushed out of there. Lest we forget for a little bit, Gene Michael actually <laughs> was the manager of the Cubs. But that's neither here nor there.
He came back as general manager just in time for George Steinbrenner's suspension. And without George Steinbrenner meddling, he was able to assemble a team through the farm. The Yankees were terrible. They were terrible. Yes, they blew the number one draft pick on Brian Taylor, who broke his arm in a bar fight. But the other players they brought up, whether it was Jeter and Posada and Pettit, the ones we all know, Rivera, but also the likes of Gerald Williams and Jim Leyritz and Scott Kamenicki, players who were able to contribute or be available put into deals. And he made the deal of, of swapping one of the few homegrown talents that they had for the late 80s, Roberto Kelly, and flipping him for Paul O'Neill. So the players that Gene Michael can point directly to as, his, as the general manager, as the people who were developed or acquired on his watch, Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit, Bernie Williams, Mariano Rivera, Jim Leyritz, uh, Ramiro Mendoza, acquiring Jimmy Key, acquiring Paul O'Neill, um, there's a couple other in there that I could uh, acquiring John Wetland. These were all things that were done on his watch instead of trading him away. Because in the 80s, you could have had Willie McGee as a Yankee. No. Fred McGriff as a Yankee. No. <clears throat> Doug Drabeck, Jose Rijo, Greg Gagne, all these wonderful major leaguers were all traded away as minor leaguers. Gene Michael kept the team together and put together the foundation of a champion. And when they won the World Series title in 1996, they hand the trophy to Steinbrenner, then they hand it to the manager, Joe Torre, and then they hand it to the general manager, Bob Watson. No offense to Bob Watson, but Gene Michael was pushed out of the GM role after the 95 postseason, and Bob Watson took over. Bob Watson, baseball lifer, did a fine job not diminishing Bob Watson. But Bob Watson took the bows as the general manager, and it was Gene Michael who put it together. But he gets pushed out. He had a chance to be the GM of the Red Sox, but the Yankees wouldn't allow him because he was still in their contract as a, a scout or whatever the hell he was doing at that point. So he was always pushed out. He was never allowed to have the moment in the sun, whether it was the 81 postseason, whether it was the 96 World Championship. But he put together that team. He did. And Steinbrenner gets the credit for signing players, and Bob Watson got to take the bow. At least Gabe Paul, who was the GM during the, Bronx, the beginning of the Bronx Zoo, at least Gabe Paul got to get to take the bows as the general manager when they won the 77 World Series with all the meddling from Steinbrenner. Gene Michael, I'm guessing, if you're a good Yankee fan, you know who Stick Michael is, and he's worth a big respect. But he shouldn't be that obscure a figure. He shouldn't be something that only the diehard Yankee fans know. He should be someone that all Yankee fans appreciate. And he died. He died appreciated by... The diehard fans and maybe casual fans have heard the name, but I bet most haven't.
Most give the credit to Steinbrenner opened his wallet and all the bullshit about that. And Joe Torre managed them. Well, who put the team together? Who assembled that club? Steinbrenner didn't. Think Steinbrenner should take credit for Jeter? Rivera? Bernie Williams? Andy Pettit? You think that those are people that Steinbrenner should be given credit for? Aren't those the players that the Yankee fans have the most love and admiration for? Well, don't get Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner would have traded, and he wanted to trade, Derek Jeter to the Marlins for Brian Harvey. And it was Michael said, nah, I think this Jeter kid, we should hold on to him. Yeah. Now, when Rivera and Jeter retired, people were like, oh my God, what's going to happen? I wonder if the earth will spin off its axis if Jeter and Rivera are playing somewhere other or they've retired. This is Stick Michael. So we're going to wear black armbands today. Good. How about putting a monument to him in center field? How about doing something where he has a plaque? How about naming one of the practice fields at spring training? Do something. This is a man who assembled one of the great baseball teams ever in terms of the success and the longevity that this did, and he didn't even get to take credit as general manager when they won the championship. This is a man who deserves a crapload of retroactive adulation. And it's frustrating when someone like this dies and you realize, God, did, I, did he ever get the applause he deserved while he was alive? I don't know. Sure doesn't seem that way. So this is coming from a Boston Red Sox fan who banged his head against the wall while I was living in New York watching this team win year after year and get all the respect. So when I'm praising a team like this, you know, you know that I'm being sincere because I'm not enjoying this. So Stick Michael, rest in peace. Rest in peace. You deserve it. And let me tell you something. The in memoriam video that I'm going to make for next year's All-Star game is already getting crowded between Lee May and uh, Phelan Ramirez and Gene Michael and Don Baylor and Darren Dalton. Holy Toledo. Slow down. Slow the F down. Hey, I want to talk to you about something. Um, there are three winning streaks going on right now that I find absolutely fascinating. Two of them, well, I'll get to the least interesting one, and it's amazing that this is the least interesting one. The least interesting one is Houston. Houston's won their last seven games. They have been on a tear since, well, since the hurricane hit. And since the arrival of Verlander from Detroit. They've won their last seven games, and they have, they can, they're probably going to clinch the division sometime next week. And with this seven-game stretch that they're on, it's putting to rest some of the fear that some people have had about the Houston Astros, that they're probably going to be a team 
that will limp into the postseason and might be out in the first round. I was one of those people. They sure as hell looked that way. They went through a stretch where they're going, really? I mean, they'll win 90-some-odd games, but if there was any team that was ripe to be clobbered in the first round, it looked like them. But things are clicking for this team. And all of a sudden, what looked like was going to be, you know, Boston or Cleveland, and one of them is definitely going to be the ones in, Houston is saying, no, we have the best record, and we deserve this. And this seven-game winning streak is a reaffirmation that this is a team that's a legit pennant contender. And I'll tell you something, they timed the seven-game winning streak pretty well because of what's happening in Cleveland. Cleveland, right now, as of this recording, are only three games back, you know, actually three games back in the loss column, two and a half back altogether of Houston. Remember how far Houston was ahead and Cleveland was the third best team in the American League for a while? If the range, I'm not the range of Christ, if the Astros weren't amidst this seven-game winning streak, the Indians probably would have caught them. The Indians may not lose again. May not, they may not lose a game until spring training. They're winning, and they're winning with everything firing on all cylinders, even without Andrew Miller. I picked them to win the World Series at the beginning of the year, but this is getting ridiculous. This is getting ridiculous. Every, I mean, Lindor nearly hits for the cycle. Um, Carrasco it throws a gem. Bauer throws a gem. Kluber basically, let's face it, again, this is coming from a Red Sox fan. Kluber basically clinched the Cy Young Award last night. They've won 15 games in a row. I don't know what they're going to do tonight. They're going to be playing uh, the Baltimore Orioles. So I don't know what the hell is going to happen there. They could lose by the time you hear this. But the fact that it's always a good time to say, hey, let's go on a streak that's longer than two weeks and we don't lose a game. It's never a bad thing. And it's not like, well, they may be peaking early. It's not like each team is only allotted a certain number of wins. It's not pie. And the fact that everything is clicking with this rotation, with the lineup, even with a slightly depleted bullpen, that they have this... Um, they have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder for how close they got to win the World Series last year and didn't pull it off. They just, everything's working. And they're getting tantalizingly close. This is the longest winning streak an Indians team has ever had. And it's not out of the line to think, I wonder if they'll hit the 20 that the Oakland A's did. You know, should we, should we cast Brad Pitt in this movie? You know, at this point, Playing as well as they are, would you want to face them? Even the Astros with their seven-game winning streak, it's like, all right, well, who would want to face Cleveland? I'll tell you, as a Boston fan, and yeah, the Sox lead is, I think, it's, it's three games in the lost column right now. It's, I think they're going to wind up winning the division, but I've been like, look, at, I don't know how far they're going to get. I'm obviously going to root for them. I would love to see Cleveland overtake Houston, because I don't want to face Cleveland. And how often do you say that in life? That you say, oh man, you don't want to face Cleveland. Because Cleveland, they're a winner. They have now, for the biggest part of this year, the Dodgers were the team that everyone was looking at as the best team in baseball. Well, if you like the concept of run differential, and I think it's a very interesting stat. It's not the end-all, be-all, but it's a very interesting stat to see how a team is playing. 
and how they match up with others. Uh, the Dodgers have now pat- are no, no longer the team with the best run differential. It's now Cleveland. I don't see a team beating Cleveland in the American League. And I, there are a couple of National League teams that I would be afraid of. Certainly Washington, who could, they could clinch the division this weekend. And Dodgers, if things start to go all right. And, of course, the other team, which is the, Nash, the, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks, who are playing San Diego, uh, a team that's already out of it. They've won 13 games in a row. So there's a little bit of anything you can do, I can do better. The fact that you have a 14-game and a 13-game winning streak happening concurrently, I find fascinating. I find fascinating that you have these two franchises who aren't going to intersect and playing at a level you're going, no one's beaten either one of these two teams. Is this, I mean, I've joked about, are we going to have to, are we going to brace for an Arizona versus Cleveland World Series, which I think I would love watching because I'm a baseball fan. I think it would be good baseball. It would be hard to sell, but, you know, sorry that you have to make an effort. How about this? Two exciting teams filled with superstar talents may face in the World Series. Don't you want to watch? I would. This is some pretty intense baseball that's going on with two franchises that have forgotten how to lose. It's amazing. And it brings me to the Dodgers. As I'm sitting here in Palo Alto, the Dodgers have a 10-game lead. 10 games. There's about, the Dodgers have, are, are 92 and 48. 92 and 48. Your, your pal Sully is so bad at math that I am going to use a calculator to figure this out. And that means they have 28 games to go. They have a 10-game lead with 28 games to go. And if you read the fans' reaction, you see the players' body language, and you read what's happening from the blog sites and from Twitter and from the writers of the LA Times and everything, you would assume the sky is absolutely falling even though they have a 10-game lead with 28 games to go. Their magic number is uh, 13. 13. If they played 500 ball, if they just play 500 ball the rest of the way, they win as many games as they lose. Okay? They go 14 and 14 the rest of the way which is not asking much for a team that's a 92 win at this point. If they play 500 ball the rest of the way, then it doesn't matter what Arizona does. Arizona could win every game 500 to nothing. The Dodgers would still be the champions of the National League West. And if they just go 500 the rest of the way... Not only would they be the champions of the National League West, but they would win 106 games, which would be a franchise record. That's all the Dodgers have to do is play 500 ball, and then you can say, well, how'd they do? Well, they won the division, and it's the best win-loss record in the history of the team. So, or at least the highest win total of the history of the team. So that's, the sky is falling. 
But you can understand it to a degree. Because the whole season they've been just clobbering and it just hasn't even been fair. And then Sports Illustrated writes the whole, is this the greatest team of all time? And you start wondering, man, this is theirs to lose. And, you know, clever people like me would look up and say, well, you know, Washington with their pitching might be able to give them a run for their money. And now, look at them. You know, they are on a pace, as I said, if they play 500 ball the rest of the way, they'll win 106 games and win the division. But let's go back not that far. Let's go back to the, what date shall we go back to? Let's go back to the 19th day of August. Less than a month ago. The 19th day of August, approaching late August. And the Dodgers had just beaten the Tigers in a game. And they were 87-34. and 34. That's a 719 win percentage. Over the course of 162 games, that is a pace to win 116 ball games. Now, as I said, playing 500 ball the rest of the way, they win 106. You know, it's the difference between a great team and one of the most mind-boggling finishes of all time. Okay, so they're not off to... They're not going to have one of the great mind-boggling finishes of all time. They'll still be an all-time great team in the history of a storied franchise. Fine. But here's where it gets interesting, at least for your pal Sully. It gets interesting that after that date, after the 19th, so basically... All of late August, all of early September, heading into mid-September. The Dodgers have played 19 games, and they have won five of them. They are 5-14 and 14 since then. That is a 263 winning percentage. Since that day, the Dodgers are the worst team in baseball. No one's played worse. And they have the worst run differential in that time. They've been outscored 94 to 51. So, and at that same time, Arizona has gone, has won 15 out of 17 games. So, in a period of just a few weeks, the Diamondbacks have made up 11 games in the standings. So the question to ask is, what does this mean? What does this mean for the Dodgers? Are they going to be uh, a paper lion, a team that put together a great win-loss total? But you know, if they face the Diamondbacks in the division series, would you be giving the Diamondbacks the edge? It's a distinct possibility. A thing to remember is that these narratives become clear in retrospect because a team sprinting down the stretch, like let's take the Rockies in 2007 or Kansas City in 2014, coming out of nowhere, finishing the season in spectacular fashion and riding that momentum all the way to the World Series, both those teams, all the way to the World Series. That's true. Or you could have teams that came stumbling into the postseason. The one, though, you know, the example of the Yankees, 
who lost something like 13 of their last 15 games in 2000 and going on to win the World Series comes to mind. The 2006 Cardinals absolutely stumbled into the postseason barely above 500 in 2006, and they went on to win the World Series. That same year, the Detroit Tigers did an epic face plant and lost the division title that they had a firm grasp on on the final day of the season, had to settle for the wild card. And that year, the Minnesota Twins went on a tear down the stretch to clinch the division and steal it away from the Detroit Tigers. In 96, the San Diego Padres went on a rampage at the end of the season and took the division title away from the heavily favored Los Angeles Dodgers. Do you remember either one of those teams? No. Because both those teams got their butts handed to them in the postseason. Both of them got swept. The narratives are easy to write in retrospect. Sometimes you have an instance where, well, you know what? The momentum behind them pushed them into the World Series. Then you have some people saying, well, they peaked. Or the common thing is, oh, they showed up exhausted. The Detroit Tigers won the division after this wild finish, but they were just exhausted and they lost to the Twins. But if the Tigers had won, it would have been, man, the momentum pushed them to the World Series. We are in a point... And I remember talking about this when the Red Sox won their historic face plant in 2011. We don't know how this ends. And we don't know if this is looked upon as... There, here are two avenues that could happen to the Dodgers. They win the division, but they lose in the division series. And people look to this period and said, you know what? They got undisciplined. They coasted. They peaked too soon. They peaked too soon, and they, you know, what you need to do is keep your team in contention. And they were being lackadaisical, and they took their eye off the ball, and they got too relaxed. They treated like spring training, and a team like the Diamondbacks really wanted it. You'll hear lots of stuff like that. They really wanted it, and the Dodgers, man, Dave Roberts couldn't hold that team together, and they lost. That's one narrative. The other narrative is. The Dodgers come in, they win the World Series, and this little stretch is looked upon as a positive thing. Like, do you know what? Having that adversity, having that adversity in September was the best thing that happened to the Dodgers because it woke them up and saw, oh, this is how bad things can get, and it's always better off to lose in September than in October. And the narrative will be crystal clear in November when all this is over. And people will be strutting around like they knew that this was the fate of the team and everything like that. But narratives are written in retrospect and can change on a dime. The example that I've given, I've given it before, I'm giving it again, is that in the middle of the 2004 American League Championship Series, people were saying, well, this is why the Yankees are beating the Red Sox, is that they're disciplined the Yankees are classy, they, they wear their uniforms right, their hair is, is together, they're, they're focused, and the Red Sox are sloppy, their hair is all over the place, they're a bunch of crazy characters, and this just shows you, you need the discipline of a team like the Yankees instead of being a bunch of slobs like the Red Sox. That's what people were saying when the Yankees were up 3-0. And when the Red Sox won the next four games, 
and won the World Series, suddenly it turned into, you know what? The Yankees were tight. Maybe the Red Sox are the right way to do it, that they're relaxed. They're not, you know, buttoned down. They just let things roll off their backs. Same teams. If Tony Clark's ball doesn't bounce over the wall and turn into a ground rule double and the Yankees win game five of the ALCS, it would be because of uniforms and pants being, you know, shirts being tucked into their pants and haircuts. But it bounced off, you know, bounced into the stands, and at that moment, oh, now long hair's a good thing. This thing that has happened will be written as if it's the best thing that happened to the Dodgers. They experienced that adversity, and that's what brought them together. Or it will be, oh man, they couldn't keep it together. And it's the same events. Narratives are clear in retrospect. If the Indians or the Diamondbacks don't go to the World Series, you can you take it to the bank. Someone will say they won all those games in September. They peaked. They peaked. They shouldn't have. They they should what? They should have lost a few games. They peaked. They peaked too early. Someone will say that. If the World Series is not between Cleveland and Arizona, that is what someone will write. They peaked. And it's all going to be based on the same events. Narratives are written in retrospect. Details that in the end we only know because it confirms the narrative will be given added importance. For that I mean, let's take one of my favorite pieces of overrated trivia is the fact that Jason Hayward gave a pep talk to the Cubs during the rain delay in Game 7 of last year's World Series. Well, congratulations. What a, you know, he, he fired the team up because, what, the team couldn't be motivated in Game 7 of the World Series at extra innings? If the Indians had won in the 10th, we would have found out that someone on the Indians gave a pep talk. Do you know why? Because it's Game 7 of the freaking World Series. So, we have these two fascinating win streaks. The Dodgers just have to rise to the level of mediocrity in order to be the greatest team, regular season team, in their franchise's history. I'm going to go on a limb and say they're capable of doing that. I think they're going to win the division no matter what. And I think that no matter what, if whether they'd gone on this great losing streak and whether the Diamondbacks had not gone on this great winning streak... The Diamondbacks still would have been a challenging team for the Dodgers to play because they're a talented team filled with good players. I think Cleveland is the team to beat, not because of this win streak, but because I think in a short series, having Kluber and Bauer and Carrasco and Clevenger and those pitchers going, that lineup going and that bullpen going, is going to be tough to beat in a short series. Even better than Houston, who has been wonderful recently. So, beware of putting too much into it. If you're a Dodger fan and you were booing Clayton Kershaw, or you're running around with your chicken with the head cut off as if this is going to be a great panic, you know, if they blow a 10-game lead with 28 to play, yeah, that, that would be epic. I don't see that happening. 
And even if they do, they'll be in the postseason. And you could say, hey, and if they go on to win, you say, oh, do you know what they needed? They needed that bit of adversity. Narratives are written in retrospect, and the facts are molded to fit the narrative that's only clear after it's done. I'll say here right now, with about, about what, four weeks left in the three, three or four weeks left in the season, I think the World Series, about, yeah, three weeks left in the season, I stand by that the Indians are going to win the World Series. And I think that they'll wind up beating Washington. Washington, in a short series, scares the tar out of me if I'm a National League team. Yes, including L.A., including the Cubs, and including Arizona. Because you go Scherzer, Strasburg, Gio Gonzalez, and now a strong bullpen and a good lineup, even without Bryce Harper, I think that's Washington. Absolutely. And Cleveland, head-to-head, with the Red Sox, would kill them. Head-to-head with the Yankees, head-to-head with Minnesota, head-to-head with any of the other wild-card contenders, Kansas City, Tampa Bay, Baltimore, Anaheim, Cleveland, clobbers, all of them. The one team right now, Houston, I think would give them trouble, but even Houston versus Cleveland, I pick Cleveland in six, and then I think Cleveland against any team in the National League would be a bit strong. But that will be this great winning streak they're having now would either be the moment that they say this team gelled to become a champion or it becomes, ah, if only they had that winning streak in October. So there's the narrative for you. And if you forgot what I was saying earlier, let's say our prayer and tipped hats to Gene Michael. So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, Reverend, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kalinske. This has been Sully Baseball Talk on the 8th day of September. I can't even say the word September. 2017, I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Tip your hat to me while you're at it. I'm not dead yet. And you can call me Sully.